Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 23 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach, and in today's episode you're going to be hearing from Brett Contreras. He's most famous, I guess, for popularizing the hip thrust and the hip thrust bench. Uh, his nickname on the internet is the Glute Guy, amongst other things, and um, he's conducted a lot of research by himself on surface EMG, uh, how we use different muscles in a variety of different exercises, and how these apply to different sporting actions like sprinting, jumping, changing direction, and so on. And that path led him to obtain his PhD, uh, which he's recently completed. In this episode, we talked all about that process. We talked about his his different research that he's performed, what the applications may be. We've talked about a few of his uh, internet beefs that he's had with some notable figures like Charles Poliquin, what he thinks being a really good coach constitutes, what his philosophy is, and uh, his, his direction for the future. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to get access to guys like Brett and other elite level coaches and learn from them, make sure you check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive online members community where every month I bring in a high-level guy to present on a topic that really matters within elite-level strength and conditioning. This is not just the stuff that you learn at university or on accreditation courses. You get the opportunity to sit down and listen to a presentation from a world-class coach to ask them questions and also to get advice and, and discuss different strength and conditioning topics with members from all over the world within the forum. So if you like the sound of that, get yourself over to rugbystrengthcoach.com slash members and take a look. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Dude, I appreciate you uh, you coming on. I've been uh, a, a big fan of your work for, for quite a few years now. Well, I appreciate that. I like it. So it's Dr. Brett Contreras now, right? You should say that. You know, I, I have former professors who have been like, in New Zealand, I really liked it. That's where I got my PhD. I tried to call a couple of my professors doctor, and they're like, no, 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 call me John. You know, <laughs> they're not comfortable with that, and I'm the same way. So That, that would no, be the no. only reason I would do a PhD, so my friends would have to call me doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, give, give the people a, a breakdown of, uh, of your PhD and, and kind of what you found out from everything. So... Uh, here's a funny story. Um, I was thinking about doing my PhD locally here at ASU. I, I live in Phoenix, Arizona. And, uh, but the only, the only professor who would take me on here at ASU, she was doing research on bone density in the elderly. And, oh. you know, I'm just like, uh, you know, like like exercise, but still on how exercise affects bone density on the elderly. And I'm just like, yeah, I was not very psyched about that. And some of your articles, and you're a biomechanics guy. You're a, you wouldn't be happy doing your PhD in physical activity, nutrition, and wellness. You're more of a biomechanics guy. I, you know, I encourage you to wait till you find the, uh, you know, a better situation. And then... This study came out with Matt Brugelli, who ended up being my friend. He's a, now a professor at AUT, but he was, this was before he got hired at AUT, and AUT universities in Auckland, New Zealand. But a study got published, and I remember when it came out, this has been something I had been arguing about online, and I started thinking this way because it just makes sense to me that if you want to sprint faster, you have to put more force into the ground horizontally 
You know, like if you want to go faster forward, you have to put more force into the ground rearward. And I didn't even know that there was this huge debate about sprinting forces. And all the track and field coaches back then, they all agreed that for acceleration, horizontal forces were paramount. But they argued that once you reach top speed, net horizontal forces are zero. So because they cancel each other out, like propulsive and or braking and propulsive forces are equal, then the, the, those are net horizontal forces now negligible, and vertical force becomes more important. And they would cling to studies by uh, Peter Wiend in 2000, and then this book that Ralph Mann wrote, who, who those guys are still to this day probably the two most popular figures in... Uh, or at least researchers in track and field. And I just, you know, I, I read that and I'm like, that doesn't make sense. That, that doesn't even make sense with, you know, with physics. Yeah, I know net forces go to zero, but braking and propulsive are still going to be higher. So anyway, I would get a ton of flack for my views on sprinting. And back then I wasn't a scientist. I, you know, I, <laughs> I was a curious, well, I was a scientist in the sense that I was curious and passionate and willing to do a, conduct experiments and things like that. I had conducted a lot of EMG research back then. But I was not well trained, you know, I didn't have formal training and all that. So to make a long story short, I read this article on like a Friday night and it came out on Twitter. I saw it on Twitter, but I couldn't pull pull up the paper. I didn't have access. I wasn't a student then, so I couldn't access the paper. But I emailed a friend of mine and said, hey, can you access this paper for me? And he was able to pull it up. I read it, and it was a study by Matt Brighelli showing that he had people running on the force treadmill, a Woodway force treadmill, and they ran it 60%, 70%, 80%, 90% of max speed, and then max speed. And this study showed that as, as velocity increased, vertical forces, actually I think it started at 50%, but vertical forces went up, maybe it started at 40% actually, anyway, sorry, I can't remember this really well, but vertical force peaked at 60% of max speed. It didn't go up after that, but horizontal force, net horizontal force, uh, kept continuing to increase, or maybe it was propulsive force, I'm not sure, but anyway, horizontal force increased linearly, and so there had been a couple of studies that kind of alluded to this, but um, now it was a bigger deal, it was like, okay, um, I emailed Matt Brighelli and John Cronin, the two professors on the study, and I was like, probably very unprofessional because I was just emailing them just to say congratulations about the paper. And next thing you know, Matt was telling me, well, you should get your PhD. Ask John. So then I started up a conversation with John and, and he's like, you know, we have the same interests. So I ended up going to AUT, at, you know, moving to New Zealand from Phoenix, Arizona and studying because I told him I, I've gotten this exercise popular, the barbell hip thrust. I think it's better for speed production than squats, and I think it works through allowing athletes to generate more horizontal force. 
and this stuff's right down his alley. So the take-home lesson here is that I'm so glad I waited because I got to do my research in something that fascinates me, and I kind of had free reign to study wherever the hell I wanted, and how cool is that? So I got, I was able to, you know, put together a thesis of everything that intrigued me, uh, you know, that, that pertained to my overarching question of is horizontal force more important, you know, than vertical force for improving sprint uh, acceleration, and and if so, what are the what you know what kind of exercises are the most beneficial? Which we didn't really get to delve into that because all my my PhD thesis kind of primarily looked at squats versus hip thrusts. And and what were the findings? So. Uh, yeah, we had, and it's funny because I made sure to be blinded just because I figured some people might think, oh, here's this guy, he he the, thought the up. The glute guy. <laughs> yeah, the glute guy, and he thought up the hip thrust, so um, so he he's going to, you know, he, maybe he'll doctor the, the data or something like that. So I was blinded from the training and from, you know, the data collection, and uh but my my friend Travis McMaster and him and another coach they were involved in it and it was a, a rugby athletes but it was male adolescents so that's why with this it's like it's one study we need like ten studies but it, either way it's really cool that we had the 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 coach of the team was more comfortable programming front squats than back squats just because he felt. They, that front squats you stay a bit more upright and they were a bit easier for the the his his team to perform. So we didn't compare back squats; it was front squats. But uh, we did earlier in the thesis. I measured the EMG activity of all different types of squats, and you get really really similar levels of activation in the quads, the glutes, and the hamstrings. Even though if you do a full back squat or a full front squat, the the activation is almost identical. I mean, scary identical. It's like uh, down to like one percentage point, <laughs> but uh, but you're using lighter loads with the front squat. And so uh, I don't think I think the results would be the same if the back squat had been employed. But anyway, uh, so that this training study was cool because we looked at different things. We looked at the effects of six weeks of front squatting or back squatting on uh, acceleration, vertical jump, horizontal jump, mid-thigh pull, um, hip thrust strength, and then front squat strength. And the, what the results showed was that front squatting was better for jumping than hip thrusts, and that, you know, that jibes with my my theory, this this force vector theory, that vertical vertical exercises will be better at improving vertical tasks that involve vertical power, such as the vertical jump, and then it also showed that the hip thrust was better for you know horizontal sprinting acceleration, which again the hip thrust is it's interesting. The hip thrust is a is vertical in the sense that you've got gravity pushing the barbell down. But you're not standing up like you are in the squat. You're laying down, so it ends up being perpendicular to the human body. The, the force ends up being perpendicular to the human body, so it's a horizontally loaded exercise. So 
the theory there is it keeps constant tension on the hips, whereas the squat, it's really hard at the bottom, and then it's easy at the top. You know, that's just the way that with vertical hip extension exercises, that's the way the torque angle curve works. It's like hard at the bottom, easy at the top. But with hip thrusts, it stays hard the whole way through. And in sprinting, it's not like sprinting's hard when your thigh is at the top, but then easy at full hip extension. It doesn't work that way. With sprinting, you need to have good hip extension strength all the way, you know, throughout a, a more complete range of motion. You need hip extension strength to reverse the thigh, well, I would say hip extension power, to reverse the thigh from, from hip flexion into hip extension, and then during the swing phase, and then during ground contact phase, um, and then all the way th throughout the propulsive phase, but I will say that there's research showing that you don't reach full hip extension, well, you're, the hip extension torque um, in in a in a sprint, it it, it kind of shuts off mid stance, so you're not you're not quite producing hip extension torque all the way through full hip extension. But that doesn't mean in resistance training you don't want strong hip extension strength throughout the full range of motion. One study done on walking indicates that you quit producing hip extension torque because your hip runs out of range of motion, and then you you have you know the 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 bone on bone forces between the the femur and the the acetabulum or whatever the the the, the hip socket. So anyway, now I'm going off on tangents. So <laughs> hip thrusts were better for sprint acceleration than front squats, but front squats were were better for vertical jumps. So already you can see you would want to do both of them if you're trying to maximize athleticism. But what was really interesting is. I don't know why I just figured, well, the isometric mid-thigh pull is a vertical task. You're pulling upwards on a barbell, so the squat might be better for it. But then if you think about it, the mid-thigh pull, the barbell is positioned at the mid-thigh. And that's, that's kind of like halfway up where the front squat isn't really loaded in that range of motion. It's not heavily loaded. So we found that the hip thrust way more significantly uh, well the, the 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 front squat didn't improve it at all and the hip thrust significantly improved mid thigh pull uh strength uh pulling force so if you're trying so that so i can surmise you know i can conclude without having the evidence that um that hip thrust would be better at improving like the deadlift lockout than than the than a squat or a front squat so hip thrusts were superior for the mid-thigh pull. Um, surprisingly, neither exercise was significantly beneficial for the horizontal jump, but the hip thrust was, was better than the front squat at improving broad jump or horizontal jump or standing long jump, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But uh, neither one of those was significant, but that could be because the study you needed more subjects. It could have been a, a type 2 error. But, um, and then one last thing that's worth mentioning about the training study is that the, uh, the, like, if you do just front squats, you'll still build your hip thrust at about 50% of the rate that the hip thrust group builds their hip thrust, and vice versa. If you just do hip thrusts, you'll build front squat strength 
at around 50% of the rate as the group doing front squats. So that's kind of cool that that show that kind of suggests that during times of injury, like say someone has a a, a knee injury or a a back injury and they can't squat, you can give them hip thrusts and it'll preserve their strength more so than just not squatting at all or not doing any you know lower body exercise, which obviously makes sense, but it's nice to have some data. And um, yeah, so that was the main training study. I also did a case study with twins. Uh, with identical female twins and this was kind of cool because it showed that I, I made up a new test and I, I can't believe no one ever thought of doing this test <laughs> but basically because you know lots of researchers have force plates a lot of coaches have force plates too so you stand you know you position a force plate a few feet away from the wall and then you just stand so your torso is at a 45 degree angle to the wall, your arms are outstretched horizontally in front of you and you push into the wall as hard as you can and that measures your maximum horizontal force production and okay. so yeah and that's and that's very important in sports you know that especially sports like American football and rugby where and you know uh, where you have to push an opponent forward. That's a fundamental task in those sports. So this case study showed that hip thrusts were much more effective than the squat in improving horizontal force production, um, theoretically because the hip thrust is associated with more, you know, more torque at end range hip extension, which is where that back foot is producing, you know, the, the, the joint angles that that back foot is at is more, it's not in a significantly flexed, hips flexed position, which is where the squat primarily works. And then it also showed that both uh, exercises were, um, were effective in building glute mass or gluteus maximus muscle thickness as measured on ultrasound. The squat at around 20 to 21% and the hip thrust at about 28% uh, in just six weeks of, of back squatting or hip thrusting. So just six weeks they improved muscle thickness in the gluteus maximus by 20 to 21% in the, in the case of the squat and then 28% in the hip thrust. And this was a very aggressive six-week program though. I really liked it. It was a DUP a daily undulated periodization plan where they, and it was kind of high reps because these these were beginners, but on Monday, on day one, they did uh, four sets of 10, and I think I start off with like 75% of 1RM or something like that, and then day two or Wednesday, they did five sets of six with like, I don't know, like 85% of 1RM starting out. Um, and then day three, they did three sets of 15 with like 65% or something, but those were just starting points. I just made sure to bump them up each week. And, uh, and what was fascinating, these are kind of taller, lankier women. They're really, they're like five foot 10, um, twins. So what was fascinating about this is that I found that the the squat, so the, the squat, you know, it would take a lot longer. So there's a lot more. So what's interesting, in a study, you want to be fair, so you try to equate volume. Yeah. But 
the squat takes a lot longer to perform because it's, you know, you lower it slower eccentrically. The hip thrust, you kind of just bang it out, which, by the way, we did study the forces of uh, the force and impulse and power involved in hip thrust versus squats. And I did it, I didn't give special instructions as to how to perform. You know, they squatted to, to parallel and we gave them instructions on how to hip thrust, but we didn't give them instructions on tempo because we wanted to see, you know, rather than telling them lower it slowly or anything like that, we want to see how people naturally perform these movements in the gym. And what's kind of cool is I had hypothesized, I'm going to work my way back to the twin study in a second, but I had hypothesized that people are stronger. If you're a coach, you you know that most people are way stronger with hip thrusts than they are with squats. Oh, yeah. Heavier loads. Now, I'm not saying in powerlifting these guys who can squat 1,200 pounds could hip thrust 1,200 pounds, but I'm not talking about, you know, powerlifters who wear, you know, squat suits and all that. I'm talking about just normal everyday clients, normal humans, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and athletes. You know, you, you can, you know, my, my typical clients can hip thrust a lot of times, you know, you know, a lot of times, like, you know, 50, sometimes it even, depending on the anthropometry, if you have a, like a lanky person, sometimes they can hip thrust like 200% of what they can full squat. So, um, so, or, or how would you say that? You'd say 100% more, not 200% more. Yeah. Double. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Double. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, I just thought since people are way stronger, and the hip thrust is so what is force force is mass times acceleration so you're using heavier mass you also accelerate the hip thrust faster you don't have this crazy sticking region where you're like this squat you know that you know there's a point in the squat where you feel like so uncoordinated and just like, like shake, yeah. shaking like a shitting dog just right. stuck <laughs> and so the the this hip thrust doesn't have that, so you you explode faster. So I'm like, it's higher higher mass and higher acceleration. We're gonna have way higher forces, and because you know, think about what is power. Power is force times velocity. So if the force is so much higher and the velocity is higher, they're gonna have higher power outputs. And what is impulse? Force times time. You're gonna have, you know, the force is so much higher there because force lays the foundation for power and impulse. You're going to have just the hip thrust. I, I remember telling my buddy, I'm like, this study's stupid. It's just a formality. I already know that hip thrusts are going to kick the shit out of squats and everything. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's, but that doesn't mean it transfers better. It just means you have higher forces and powers and impulses. But I got the data back and I'm like, what? And at first I was like, the data, this is wrong. Something happened to the force plate. Uh, I'm like, this is, what is going on here? I don't understand it. And then I had to think about what was going on. So the squat got higher on everything. And for two reasons. Number one, the squat has a lot more range of motion. Um, Now, you could artificially manufacture a hip thrust where they're, you know, they're, you use a super high bench and make them go really deep into hip flexion. But then that gets awkward and uncoordinated as well. So that doesn't replicate real world scenarios so most of the people they hip thrust off around a 16 inch tall bench 
so um we uh so we had them do it about like how they replicate it in my gym and in most gyms now sometimes you're limited by what if you use this bench at your gym you're limited by whatever benches they have there but i tried to make it what's optimal and so yeah the squat uses uh oh god what was it it was 0.38 uh I can't remember the exact, God, it's been a while, <laughs> but the squat uses, you know, significantly more range of motion and, uh, it, and then the eccentric force in squats was very close to the concentric force. However, so like going down versus going up isn't that much different for the, on a, on a force plate when you do squats, but in a hip thrust, the concentric forces was like th- they were or they were like three times higher in the concentric versus the eccentric meaning people use a ton of concentric force and power to power up the hip thrust and then you just let gravity do its thing you kind of shut off and just let yeah. gravity pull the weight down so you're that might like- be um that might make it a nice lift to use in season where maybe you're trying to manage that eccentric load a little bit more right it has a lot of implications now that's not to say, so if I was, oh, I, in the, with this thesis, I, tr- I was really um, wanted to look at, I wanted to make it ecologically valid. Like, what do people do in the gym? I, I, you have a lot of researchers who will be like, no, you have to equate, equate range of motion, equate tempo, equate, you know, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to look at how, how it's really done. So... If you wanted to, so if I wanted to do a study, say I did another study and I told the athletes, lower, lower the weight slowly on a hip thrust and don't touch down, reverse the load, um, you know, in midair, right, you know, an inch over the ground, then yeah, I would get way higher forces, but um, no, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to look at what really does happen. So this does have implications. For example... The hip thrust is mainly a concentric, you know, a concentric only exercise. But if you think about it, sprint acceleration is mostly concentric. You know, oh, yeah, you massive. Yeah, so that may be one reason why it transfers very favorably to sprints. And maybe you can h- handle a ton of volume on it because you're you're not, you know, you don't get so much eccentric. Um, but then that would, you know, the, then this, then since you have eccentric loading maybe that makes it and you go a little bit deeper maybe that adds maybe you get um so when you look at all this you can say oh maybe squat if you want optimal glute mass and optimal function you'd want to do both squats and hip thrusts because squats take you deeper and you know have more uh, you have more eccentric loading and take you deeper into hip flexion so that might create more muscle damage in the glutes which jives with personal experience and my experience as a trainer and coach that you tend to get more sore glutes with squats unless you're unfamiliar with with uh you know with hip thrusts yeah assuming you're familiar with them whereas hip thrusts we measured the EMG in a earlier paper and hip thrusts greatly outperform squats in gluteus maximus act, EMG activation and biceps femoris or hamstrings activation and quads was similar people think that hip thrust 
you know, don't work the quads much, but they do. It's actually, they highly activate the quads for, and that makes sense biomechanically for a couple of reasons, probably beyond the scope of this podcast. But um, uh, anyway, so because you get such higher activation, now activation does not equal tension on the muscle, but it's, there's some studies showing it's pretty similar. Uh, You get a fairly linear line it's just not it's not one to one but yeah good luck getting tension without activation right exactly so um so uh i can surmise again that the hip thrust induces a lot more tension because you're getting you know two to three times higher activation in the glutes and also in the hamstrings as well you're getting such higher activation that i mean the squat is not Again, biomechanically speaking, you don't want to use the hamstrings in a squat because the hamstrings will create knee flexion torque. Even if you're using the hamstrings to extend the hips, you can't say, oh, you know, force, I want you to work all at the hip and not at the knee. It doesn't work that way. You know, force works on both ends. Um, And so if you produce hip extension torque, you're also producing knee flexion torque. And so... If you're producing knee flexion torque and you're performing knee extension, as in the case of the squat, then the quads have to work harder now to make up for whatever the hamstrings are doing. Uh, so they got to do double duty. They have to extend the knee against gravity and the barbell load, uh, but now they also have to extend the knee to work against the hamstrings. So anyway, squat is not the best hamstring exercise. We've known that for a long time. Yeah. So. Uh, if you look at taking the force plate data and the EMG data into account, you could say the hip thrust leads to greater tension and also greater metabolic stress, and that jives with personal experience. You don't get a pump in the glutes when you do the squat, but you get a huge pump in the glutes when you do a hip thrust. So those are kind of three primary factors, according to researcher Brad Schoenfeld, who's kind of a hypertrophy expert. He suggests that all all hypertrophy stimuli kind of come, fall under three primary mechanisms induced by weight training, which are me- mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscle damage. So maybe the hip thrust is best for uh, mechanical tension and metabolic stress, and the squat is best for muscle damage. Maybe you get maybe you get an ideal you maybe get ideal results when you do both of them compared to one or the other. And for function, we we showed that front squats worked better for improving vertical jump, whereas hip thrusts were better for improving acceleration. And you know, so you would want to perform both of them for functional reasons as well. Yeah. And and then there's uh, how does hypertrophy affect function? Obviously, you know, there's a relationship there. If you want to produce as the most force possible, you're going to care about hypertrophy. Maybe not for pure power sports, but Sports like rugby, you need a good blend of force and power production. You need a, to be strong at all points along the force velocity curve. So back to the twin study, and then I'll wrap up my PhD. Yeah. <laughs> the, the twin study was cool because this wouldn't be the same in all people because they're very tall, like I said. So the one twin who did the hip thrust, she'd just pump them out. And the twin who did the squats, it's a long way down for her, and she sat back a lot because they're lanky. And so what I found was that the, 
that squats had over twice the time under tension. Like I remember a set of 15 on Friday, they do their sets of 15. <clears throat> the squat sets of 15 reps would be like 64 seconds long. It was like a oh. over a minute long, <laughs> per, you know, um, which, yeah, it comes to like four seconds per rep. But yeah, her eccentric phase was really slow. And so, so then you're thinking, okay, advantage hip thrust. Oh, sorry, sorry, advantage squat because, uh, yeah, volume is equated. They're both, they're both doing three sets of 15, but the squat has so much time, more time under tension. But then, no, that's, now let's think of volume load. Volume load is, you know, the, the weight times the reps. So the hip thrust twin was using a lot more weight than the squat twin because they're lanky. They, their one rep max squat in the beginning of the study was like 100 pounds, which is what, like 42 kgs or yeah, something? Yeah, not, not a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's not a lot. The, to, to, to go past parallel, they, had to, they weren't very strong. I mean, these were beginners and, uh, in the squat and the hip thrust. They had, they had a lot of experience with strength, with uh, like, you know, resistance training, but they didn't do barbell squats and hip thrusts. Their one rep max for the hip thrust was around 100, well, it was almost 200 pounds, so not quite 100 kgs, but like 90 kgs. So it's about double. And so she's using a lot heavier loads for the hip thrust. So when I calculated volume load, the volume load for the hip thrust was over double what the squat volume load was. So that, that advantage goes to the hip thrust. But when I multiplied out volume load times time under tension, which I think gives you a cool figure. I just don't know what you would call that figure. Yeah. <laughs> the weight you use, uh, you know, the load that you use times the, no times the number of reps times the time under tension. Then, then the squat and hip thrust were pretty equal because you had advantage in volume load to the hip thrust, advantage in time under tension for the squat. They end up being similar when you multiply those together. So anyway, that's a, I've just rambled on now. Um, about my thesis for like a half an hour. So it's a very cool thesis. I'm excited when it actually gets um, – so I got awarded my PhD. I had to submit some updates to the thesis based on what the reviewers suggested. And then I don't know when exactly it will be published online so people can check it out, but I would imagine that would be in the next few months. So we know what your family are getting for Christmas this year. <laughs> What's that? They're going to be getting leather-bound copies of the uh, the dissertation. Oh yeah, that's funny you say that because I have to pay for five copies, and I don't know who exactly the five uh, copies. I had to do that for my uh, my masters. Never, okay. never to be seen again. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I looked at your Facebook page. Like, you have got a huge online following. I think your Facebook page is like up close to a hundred thousand people. I'm curious, how many people? jumped on that page uh, after the, the Charles Poliquin kind of video rant that uh, a lot of people will, will have seen of yours? Oh, um, you had to go there, didn't you? Uh, so um, I love it. <laughs> the, the Charles Poliquin rant. So I, and I, I think you mentioned that you want to talk about Naughty Aguilar as well. So yeah. you know, I lay off of people. I'm busy. I have a, bu a busy schedule. Or as you guys would say, a busy schedule. <laughs> That's my favorite English word, by the way. Um, 
so I, I have a busy schedule and I'm I don't I don't go off you know attacking people but if there's been a number of people who attack the hip thrust and they don't have data like I'm the only one who has all this data I hope in 10 years it's a whole different story in fact I'm gonna be funding research out of my own pocket just because I'm so darn curious you know I I drive a like a four thousand dollar truck and I don't I don't dress particularly fancy I don't do fancy things I'm mostly at home working on things so if I make money I can <laughs> I can use that to have other researchers conduct really high quality experiments uh, and studies that, that we can publish and learn more because I have so many things I want to learn about you know, a lot of them involving hip thrusts a lot of them just we ha we don't have a lot of research on functional training like functional training is a real thing when you hear functional training you think of all these stupid wobbly you know unstable exercises that's not functional to me functional training is how how do rugby players train how do NFL football players train how do you know yeah. track and field athletes train because we're trying to maximize the transfer from exercise to yeah. high performance movements you know you know the stuff that makes you better at what you do every every, right. every training has a function it, and if it makes you better it's functional and if it doesn't it's not <laughs> and and if and we don't even know like what's better for improving the vertical jump squats or deadlifts we don't even know that there's no study comparing that not well, not a single study ever how how weird is that? You know that yeah. this stuff. I what I want to do is is you know because I could go in any direction now. I don't want to become a research professor, um, but I do want to keep conducting research or at least funding research, and I want to really help the field uh, amass a, a of good body of literature in the next ten to twenty years on functional training like another example alright everyone rips on machines but there's a big difference between doing a program of isolation machine movements versus plate loaded movements so yeah I mean if I said Kira I'm gonna have you do <clears throat> here's your workout program leg extensions leg curls you know cable hip extension cable hip flexion machine calf raises machine pec deck, machine lateral raises, machine um, pullovers, machine, machine, yeah. <laughs> machine tri cable tricep extensions. All right, you're just piecing together a single joint movement for every joint action. But if instead I said, okay, you're going to do a all-machine program, but it's going to be plate-loaded squats that you're going to do past parallel, plate-loaded deadlifts on the hammer strength squat lunge machine you're going to do deadlifts off that you're going to do plate loaded hip thrusts um, there's a there's a company that's making that right now so a plate loaded hip thrust machine which I'm jealous about because I wish I invented it but uh, <laughs> really cool looking and you're going to do plate loaded bench press and plate loaded whatever like pull downs or rows or something and and then you have another another group so you have one group doing that program versus a group doing all the free weight counterparts. You have a group doing free free weight squats, free weight deadlifts, free weight free weight hip thrusts, 
bench press, rows or pull downs, whatever. You make the program exactly the same except one's doing barbell, one's doing plate loaded. I bet you that you would see the exact same results. You'd see no differences in performance outcomes. And this is needed because you've got all these people who act like machines are stupid, but on the one hand, you can say, well, free weight makes you stabilize the, you know, you have to use muscles to stabilize so it works on proprioception a little bit better. Well, I will say I've measured the EMG activation of the stable, like what are, people always talk about these stabilizers, but they never mention what muscles these stabilizers are. It's yeah. like, oh yeah, your stabilizer muscles, but what are the stabilizer muscles in a squat? Are they the adductors? Are they the hip external rotators? Are they the, the glute medius? Like, what are they? You know, are they, are they, the obliques, or what are they in a squat? So I've measured adductor and gluteus medius and you know external oblique activity during both free weight and plate loaded squats, and, and not just not just stabilizer. I've also measured quad and like vastus lateralis, biceps femoris, gluteus maximus, and they're the same. They're the same in free weight versus plate loaded. So you're getting similar activation. That does that's not to say that, yes, the one in one of them in the plate loaded that's stabilized for you, but that could be a benefit or a drawback. It could be a benefit because you could get people to use heavier loads and not fear the movement as much, especially taller, lankier athletes. So anyway, my point is you could make the argument that, oh, people can use heavier loads and they're not as they're not as afraid with the plate loaded versions. Um, or you could say people are, it builds proprioception better or something doing free weight. Cause you know, it's not, but it's funny cause we'll, we'll use the argument that like coaches will use the argument to say free weight. You should, you should not do squats or deadlifts on a BOSU ball <laughs> because you want to use heavy loads. You don't want to be limited by, um, you know, being unstable yeah, but, they but will a machine not, is the heaviest load of all. Right. So, but then they will not use that same argument with like a plate loaded machine. So anyway, my whole point isn't because I want to like you know spread the pop. Well, I guess I do. I would love it if if I was a strength coach, uh, like a professional strength coach, and that was my full time you know job, and I could design my own facility. I. Swear, there's probably 50% of coaches that you could say to them, I'll give you a free line of plate loaded, you know, <laughs> equipment. And they'd say, Nah, I'm not. <laughs> you know, it's like they'd be like, I don't want that clogging up my room. I'd rather have more room for for Olympic platforms and, and squat racks or something. Glute hands and reverse hypers. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Glute hand raises and reverse hypers, which, by the way, I always look at. I'm not trying to plug my own hip thruster here, but I, I don't – I think out of the hip thruster, the glute ham raise and the reverse hyper, I think the hip thruster is the best. I really like reverse hypers though, but glute ham raises I think – well, I know all the research on the Nordic ham curl uh, and I know knee flexion exercise is very important for building strong hamstrings. Um but I do think the hip thrust is the best. And I, I never see, like, you'll see 10 reverse hypers in a row. You'll see 10 yeah. ham raises in a row. You never see 10 hip, hip thrusters in a row. And I think athletes would see better results if more hip thrusters were. It's, were. you know, my, my personal issue with, with the research on Nordics 
is that the vast majority of, of research into Nordics appears to be done in soccer players who traditionally are allergic to iron and sweat. And what you're generally showing with that research is that if you do something, it works better than nothing. So normally those guys are doing no direct hamstring training anyway. And when they do Nordics, the, the rate of uh, hamstring injury incidents goes down. And that's, to me, that seems logical. But if, I suppose if you look biomechanically at the characteristics of a hamstring pull or tear, they're so distinct from uh, a Nordic uh, hamstring curl that I don't see how that transfer could continue beyond the first, you know, for example, year of training. Yeah, well, so it's funny you say that because <laughs> this is a topic that, like, um, so Blazevich, Tony Blazevich, he's at a, in Australia out of ECU. He has a study showing that you, you do induce, when you do eccentrics, or long length exercise, it, it, it increases, well, he doesn't even believe it increases muscle length. He thinks it changes the optimum length. So the optimum length means if you have people on a dynam, on an isokinetic dynamometer yeah. and you test them at different ranges of motion and you look at where does this muscle produce the most force at what range. Yeah, you're going to you, increase that sarcomere length at which they well, pro- that's, produce. Well, that's... My theory, but Blazevich is smarter than me on this topic, and he thinks it's he doesn't think it increases sarcomere. Well, you're not increasing you're not increasing sarcomere length, you're increasing fascicle length. You in you increase sarcomeres in series, like okay. laid on top, you know, one like laid out in uh, in in series with one another, not as as opposed to in parallel where you grow them side by side. So you do make the muscle longer. Slightly longer, but that only Blazevich's research shows that that happens for six weeks, and then, um, and then you don't see any more. I mean, think about it. If you could keep lengthening muscle with eccentrics, especially at a long muscle length, yeah. eventually you'd stop. You'd you'd become, you know, like Gumby. You wouldn't stabilize your joints because your muscles would keep lengthening. That would be a very negative adaptation after a while. Yeah, but. Anyway, we don't have – it's really hard to count sarcomeres. You know, you have to sit there under a microscope and it's boring and it's tedious and it's – there are some issues with it, some technical issues, methodological issues associated with it. So uh, whether you're increasing sarcomeres in series or doing something else, it does show that you can become stronger. You become – the muscle becomes strongest at a longer length than before. So Nordics work really well for that, but it hasn't been compared to like a hip flexion, you know, like a an RDL or something where you're stretching the muscle. I think that would, well, what would be really cool is to look at different regions because maybe the Nordic works better on one region and maybe the the RDL or something like that works better on, a, on a, another region because I'm involved in two studies that show, uh, one, I think these are the only two studies, I believe. One's with Jordan Mendiguccia. He's a Spanish physical therapist slash researcher. And we used MRI, uh, uh, functional MRI, uh, the weighted T2 technique where you look at, uh, you look at after the, uh, you can do it, you can use this immediately after exercise to look at, it detects fluid shifts. So you can look at activation if it's right after the exercise is performed, but if it's like two days afterwards, then that looks at muscle damage. And we showed different that we showed different uh, 
levels of muscle damage in different regions of the hamstring, whether you were doing a, an eccentric lunge or an eccentric leg curl. And then Brad Schoenfeld and I did a study using EMG where we looked at uh, the stiff leg deadlift versus the lying leg curl, and we showed that both exercises achieve similar hamstring activation in the upper hamstrings, but the lying lying leg curl was better at activating the lower hamstrings. So uh, they, you know, maybe you get different adaptations. But anyway, now I'm going. I'm I'm I always go off on these crazy tangents <laughs> and forget to work my way back. Anyway, my whole point initially was that we need more research on on functional. We need to know. All right, what what exercise is best for improving agility? You know, let's just say think of the squat, the deadlift, and the hip thrust. What's best for improving agility? I think it's the squat because you use a lot of knee extension torque to change direction to cut left to right. But now I'm assuming agility is left to right, whereas agility is just changing changing direction. You have front front to back, but I think there's a lot of knee extension even in decelerating from. Um, you know, sprinting forward and decelerating, you're using a ton of knee extension, uh, eccentric knee extension torque. So I think the squat's probably best for improving agility and change of direction. What exercise is best for improving vertical jump? Well, it's probably the deadlift uh, or, or, yeah, it's probably the deadlift, I would think, because the, the bottom of vertical jump kind of looks like a deadlift, you know? Yeah, and what exercise best for improving sprinting speed? I think it's the hip thrust, but it, it, we don't know this, and you know we need this this research in a lot of populations. So I plan on conducting a lot more research over time and being committed, and it's a pain in the butt. Like people don't understand how much work is involved in conducting and publishing studies. I, I, there's so much work involved in not only just the training, if it's a training study, all the the data collection and the training and then the data analysis and writing the paper up and then you submit it to a journal, you wait back to hear back. If they like it, you've got a couple rounds of peer review to satisfy the peer reviewers and it's the, the it's months and months of work. Yeah. <laughs> you've so, and, um, you've, you've but, put me off. I was thinking about applying to do a PhD but <laughs> the, the, the more well, I hear, the, 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 the more scared I get. Well, but what's nice is when you're getting a PhD or when you're a research professor, you have access to this equipment. So you have, oh, cool, I can use the force plate. I can use the EMG. I can use the isokinetic dynamometer. I can use the ultrasound. I can use this or that. And you can, usually you have an easier time of obtaining research subjects. So you can either put out flyers and say, hey, I'm you know conducting this study. I need volunteers. You can reach out to your peers, and you know you can you, you you can you have access to a lot more people on a university setting, or you can go contact a coach and say, "Hey, are you open-minded to collaborating on this?" But for me, I am just a you know a personal trainer slash blogger out of my garage here in Phoenix, Arizona. You know, I've got a four-car garage. It's probably the best garage in Arizona. It's it's one of the best garage gyms you could ever dream up. But nevertheless, it's really hard for me to get subjects. It's hard for me to have the time to carry all this stuff out. Hence why I'd like to either hire researchers one day to work for me 
or just continue funding having other researchers because some these some of these researchers have these amazing labs but they're limited on funding so I can just you know pop them seven thousand dollars and have them conduct the study for me so that's why I want to make more money so I can yeah. keep conducting more research and keep making a bigger impact on the field moving now I just remembered where why I got off on this tangent we're talking about Charles Poliquin and Nadia Aguilar yeah both of them bash me and the hip thrust, and um, and and uh, you know, imagine being in my shoes where I'm like uh, more of one of the more scientific bloggers out there who tries to be committed to being evidence based, and yeah, you know, it's a tough role as being a like a flashy blog. If you want to be a popular blogger, I mean, I sit there, I see some some of my not. Colleagues, they're not my colleagues. Some of my my competition or whatever. I, peers, I guess some of your peers. <laughs> well, I watch some of the tactics these other people use, and they over overhype things and overdo it on the marketing. And maybe some people think that about me, but I honestly don't think I do that. And I try to be very. But then on the other hand, you could just never say anything until you have tons of research data. You could never speculate about anything and stay in this nice little research bubble where you never make a single claim or speculate or go out on a limb and try to yeah. hypothesize about anything. In which case, who wants to follow that guy who's so scared of his little of his own shadow? So yeah, being it a has blog- to come with a caveat. Like I think I I'm nowhere near your level uh, uh, kind of backing things up with evidence. So I, I have to be really. Um, cognizant of every time I speak to someone, I just kind of leave the asterisk there and say, "Listen, I could be wrong about this," and I say, "I'm I'm allowed to change my mind." But I I think yeah, that's it, exactly you know Poliquin, it's you know my way or the highway in my experience. Yep, and so that's what he was bashing the hip thrust, and it's all out of jealousy um, because he doesn't have any data. I don't even looking at him. I don't think he's ever done a hip thrust. Like you, you think about it. What do you have to do to know an exercise? Think about if you were like back in the you know early 1900s and you've never seen someone doing a squat before and, and you've got these talented athletes you're training and all of a sudden you walk in and you see someone doing a loaded back squat with like 150 kgs squatting full range of motion. You, your first instinct would be like, oh, you know, you'd be scared of it. Yeah. <laughs> and then so so say you go oh I'm going to try that and you walk up and you put the 150 pounds on your back or sorry 150 kgs the 330 pounds on your back and you go to squat down and it hurts your knees and it hurts your back and you're like oh my god this is so dangerous don't ever squat this is stupid this didn't it didn't even feel functional it felt like it's going to destroy me think about that or the same with the deadlift if you've never you know you have to take the time to ingrain proper movement patterns and use learn good form. Start out with body weight, add load, get strong, um, get strong yourself. Note the effects. Note how it, and and collect data. You know, note how it affects your sprinting, your jumping, your agility, your force production, your rotational power. Note take take note of that, and then start collecting the same data with clients and athletes that you train. And after a couple of years of this. You can become very smart about an exercise. Notice all the work that in, is entailed. It's not just looking at exercise and going, oh, that's stupid, or gee, I'm jealous of this guy because he's getting popular, so I'm going to bash it. That's the antithesis of a good science. And you actually do more harm than good. 
you actually would be better off not even being in the industry because you do more harm than good. And that's what these characters do. You know, I don't look at, to me, everything's science. So I don't look at things and go, oh my God, that's so stupid. I look at things, you know, I, I, I always try to teach people. Like I just had a seminar that I did this weekend and I, I always will say, all right, everything, you, you, you want to have a large toolbox and everything has its place. You might use your hammer every day, and you might use this electric sander only once every month or something, but you, you want to have them both. You want to have a large toolbox just so you don't have to make a separate trip. <laughs> you know, you, you want to have a lot. Uh, uh, there's so many different situations that arise. Yeah. So, like those whole body vibration platforms, I don't, I think it's stupid to do like I see people doing glute bridges off of them. Well, I have a study showing that the glutes are too far away from the feet to try the, the, they don't they don't increase their activation or anything from the vibration. So they're doing glute bridges off of these and that's useless. It also is less load on the body because your feet are elevated. You know, I like feet elevated glute bridges if people are too hamstring dominant. I like putting a knee around people's sorry, a band around people's knees. And having to do feet elevated glute bridges for high reps if the goal is to induce glute hypertrophy. Or again, if I'm trying to teach them not to be so quad dominant in a, in a glute bridge hip thrust pattern. So yeah, I do like those for various purposes. But you are using less load on the glutes. There's less load on the hips. The same as if you were doing a torso elevated push-up. It's less body weight. So I see people doing that. I'm like, okay, that's silly. Don't use the whole, whole body vibration platform for that. Use a barbell and a bench and elevate the shoulders, not the feet. However, there is some research indicating that whole body vibration uh, training can be effective for ten tendinopathy. So if I was to, you know, say I, ha I was a strength coach and I had – I would encourage my physical therapists or whatever, athletic trainers, whoever I worked with, to, to look into this and say, what are the protocols that seem to be effective? Because I don't know the protocols. I don't know the, the frequency the, uh, and the time. I, I, I'd have to be like making up my own protocols, so I'd try to look to the research. But I wouldn't just never use this thing. But I will say my initial bias is to go, God, these things are like $10,000, and you, you know how much – good strength training equipment you could buy for that much. But anyway, I, as a researcher, I have to look at things and say, what is the value that it brings? And what scenario is this useful? People will go, leg extensions are useless. They're so stupid. Don't ever do leg extensions. You know, those articles where you'll read, where it's like, five, well, they'll go five useless exercises. And it's always like the leg extension, the crunch, and like, you know, people. Tricep kickback. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And they'll go, these don't do anything. Yes, they do. If you are a bodybuilder and you are trying to maximize rectus femoris hypertrophy, then you need to do leg extensions because compound hip plus knee extension exercises like squats, lunges, and leg press do not work the rectus femoris maximally. You need the leg extension maximizes rec fem muscle activation. So yeah, there's a few studies showing that it greatly outperforms squats and leg presses and lunges, the the, the bilateral, or sorry, not the, but the compound knee and hip extension movements. So for rectus femoris hypertrophy, but also what if you're, you know, coming back from a serious injury 
and you're not ready to squat yet, but you can do light leg extensions just to get the motion going, you know? What if you're a bodybuilder and you just want you just squatted and you're crushed, but you want to induce more metabolic stress in the quads? You know, you want to pump out some high rep leg extensions to get a good pump and, and burn in the quads, then that can add to hypertrophy there over and above what squats already do without taxing the body too much, without beating up the CNS. So everything has value. Maybe it transfers, maybe it's useful to include in a soccer, you know, for kicking. I know kicking is hip flexion and knee extension, but maybe it can be useful for that. I, I haven't looked into that as much. Uh, but my point is, to me, a good practitioner tries to be evidence-based and they base their knowledge off of a combination of things they learn in the gym, training themselves, training other people, learning through like reading and talking to other coaches and attending seminars and what the research has to say and you weight things accordingly. And so these guys have not conducted studies on hip thrusts. They have not taken the time to learn hip thrusts. And I do the same thing with squats and deadlifts. When people bash squats, when people bash deadlifts, I defend it and it, 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 it enrages me because I'm a scientifically minded person. I want people to be doing these good exercises and when they don't, you know, I, I actually defend everything. I defend single leg exercise. I defend, I'm a defender of exercises. I've written a ton of articles over the years defending exercise. So I look at the guys who bash exercises just to gain popularity. They're my enemies. They're charlatans. They're just, you know, they're bastardizing science just to gain popularity. So that's the whole, that's why I did that. That's, I don't just go off and attack people, but it's especially comical to me when people come attack me and I look at their stuff and I'm like, what's that saying here? Like, don't throw stones if you live in a glass hut or something like that. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, like, to steal a line from a favorite comedian of mine, regardless of where you live, the policy should just be don't throw stones. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> but, um, don't throw stones, uh, uh, but especially if I can look at your material and it's laughable, the, the claims that you make, I could have a field day. But what's interesting is that because you said how many more followers did you get? I actually think it has I actually think it makes me look bad when I do that. It makes me look bad. It's like they say there's a, another quote, <laughs> don't never wrestle with a pig because um when you wrestle a pig uh both of you end up getting dirty and the pig loves it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> and if you think about it you know, the, no one will ever debate me. I've challenged so many guys to debates, and it's fun, so funny to me because, you know, the field of uh, resistance training, it's kind of funny. Who gets attracted to become a strength and conditioning expert? Well, a lot of times it's these guys who excelled in the weight room. They kind of form their identity. You know, I'm a big, strong guy. I'm going to become a personal trainer. I'm going to become a strength coach. I'm an authoritative figure. You will listen to me. And so there's a lot of strong personalities in our field, but it's a very ma male, you know, bravado, like machismo, like I'm manly. And then all of them are so cowardly that they won't debate. Like I'd debate anyone. Yeah. You could come on and it doesn't matter who. I, if you said, hey, Brett, I, I lined up this person. He wants to debate you on this. I, okay. And, you know, I'd admit, oh, if, like throughout this podcast, I'll admit when 
when I know something well versus when I don't know something well. But I have no problem if someone can change my mind, great. I learned more. You know, I'm not uh, – a lot of times I'd probably end up just being like, okay, here's what I think. Here's what you think. We Neither of us have – There's not. there has not been a study conducted, so I'll, I'll, I'll get on it. You know, I'll have – my buddy Andrew and I and, and Brad or whatever will we'll get together and try to plan a study, try and get it carried out because I'm curious. I want to know the answer and it would be nice to have a study to, to lean on. But anyway, yeah, that's that's what happened there. The, the, I hear, I heard that Poliquin's bashing me and I hear that Naughty Aguilar is bashing me. I go to some thread and Naughty's bashing me like crazy about my glute exercises when it's like I have people doing hip thrusts, squats, deadlifts, back extensions, lunges, reverse hypers, you know, and he's giving them like, I don't even know. They're not like real resistance training exercises. It's kind of like dancing with it's like, circus. <laughs> yeah, it's like dancing with like a light load in your hands and rhythmic kind of, and I'm like, all right, I could see that like helping in certain situations, but that's not going to maximize strength and power. No. But they've just taken, it's crazy with that. I realize you'll never win in that crowd because they've defined their own. Yeah, it's like if you if you say something on Facebook about any about functional patterns or whatever, you'll have like ten of their minions come after you, and their method of arguing is to look up your, like, go through your profile pictures and yeah. find pictures <laughs> of you <laughs> demonstrating poor posture, and they'll post that in the comments, and everyone starts laughing at you. At your posture, it's the craziest. It just I, sometimes I feel like in the twilight zone, and that's the, when uh, I, the ad hominem. Well, yeah, and that's where I'm like, oh my god, we. I think we're making progress, and then I, I realize how low level the average human being is in terms of scientific intelligence, and that's why these gurus emerge. And these, when I say gurus, I don't mean legitimate gurus. I mean these false prophets. These. Uh, pseudoscientists that just make stuff up and they it, it's a field day for them because people are so gullible I remember another god I'm coming up with all these quotes and I can't remember the exact line but it was something like there are like millions of people out there a uh, umbilical cord in hand just looking for a, a spot to plug in they, <laughs> they need they don't want to think for themselves they just want to go on autopilot you know le- latch on to someone else like a charismatic leader and so you you have a lot of these they're almost like cults in, in strength and conditioning. And what I would love is if just like Mel Sif wrote Super Training, and I never got to meet him, but to me he was the consummate scientist. It was like everything is just sports science. So I, you know, I remember reading Super Training. He's talking about loadless training, a.k.a. flexing in the mirror, like you know, posing. <laughs> like yeah. He's talking about its potential benefits of just flexing. And then – couple years ago, a study comes out with just, if you just flex your muscles as hard as you can, your arms, your biceps and triceps, because, you know, when you flex your arms, you get both of them contracting, you know, you get the triceps, you're flexing your bicep, but the triceps will co-contract, and it showed that it had, it built strength, it built hypertrophy and strength, just flexing your muscles, so, and can this help with, help with neural things, can it help people activate muscles better? I think it can, and so um, you're you know, the biggest benefit of, as well, which is it excites the ladies. Yeah, <laughs> you, 
you have to do that before you, you know, if you're at a, a, a pool party or on the beach or something. But um, anyway, it, my point is he looked at everything as what are the benefits, what are the drawbacks, where would it fit in a program, for what purposes would somebody do this? And, you know, when you design a program, you got to look at, you know, where the athlete stands, what their goals are, or not athlete, well, you could be a client, you could just be a personal trainer. So to me, I'm just fascinated by the science of, of hypertrophy, strength, you know, power, and speed, and agility, and all how this all ties together, and how I can be the best personal trainer, you know, uh, strength coach for my people, for whoever trains under me for, for, for whatever purpose and including if they want to specialize in powerlifting or if they want to compete in bodybuilding, if they want to compete in this sport versus this sport versus this sport or they want to maximize this functional task, how can I help them to the best of my abilities? And I wish more people looked at it all as like it's just all falls under the sports science umbrella. Awesome. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, so you just go to com, and if you can't remember Brett Contreras, you could just type in the glute guy to Google and my website will come up first. And that's where, if you want to follow me on social media, from the blog post, there's like those links like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, YouTube. So I have got all those pages, the social media pages. I have a newsletter. I don't spam people. I send it out every couple of weeks just with like, hey, here's some articles I've been working on um, and occasional product that I create. But uh, most of the time it's just like, here are my recent articles. So yeah, that's that's how you find me. Hey, thank you very much for that. I uh, I appreciate it. I'll have to get you on for a, for an episode too because I've got like another 10 questions here. <laughs> you didn't realize how much I rambled, did you, Kier? Hey, I like it. <laughs> Well, I'd love to come on again, and thanks for having me on, and I hope your listeners gain some value from it, but uh, really appreciate it, and just let me know in the next couple of months, I'd love to come on again and try to try to not ramble as much and get, get the other 10 questions answered. I like it. Thanks, Brett. Thanks, Kier.